This is The Lap with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing the film What's Eating Gilbert Grape? And the theme is duty. What's Eating Gilbert Grape came out in 1993. It stars Johnny Depp as Gilbert, a 25-year-old man who lives in a small town in Iowa with his mother, his sisters, and his intellectually disabled brother, Arnie. Gilbert's father committed suicide. His mother is morbidly obese. The house is old and falling apart. Arnie, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is a handful. If you take your eyes off him, he runs off to climb a water tower. Each time he does that, emergency services are called out to bring him down. Understandably, the first responders are getting very sick of it. Gilbert works at a small grocery store. A big supermarket is moving into town. The family that runs the grocery store pretends they can survive this, but on some level everyone can see the writing on the wall. Still, the store hasn't closed yet, so the family has Gilbert running all over town delivering groceries to loyal customers. Is it a desperate bid to keep them from defecting, or did small grocery stores often offer this kind of service? I don't know. By the time I was paying attention, these kinds of places were long gone. Gilbert is stretched thin. When he isn't working, he's taking care of his family. His mother is too heavy to move around easily. She can do little to help him. There's always more that needs to be done, and Gilbert is the only one who can do most of it. He has a couple friends his age in town, and sometimes they help him a bit here and there. John C. Riley plays a friend who is excited about the arrival of a new fast food restaurant. He is handy at points. Crispin Glover plays a friend who works in a funeral home. He's good for a laugh. But life is tough for Gilbert. There's a desperate housewife who has him deliver groceries to her house so that she can carry out an affair with him. Gilbert's interest in the affair seems intermittent. It's something to do, but it's not the thing he would choose. There's a mother and daughter traveling through town in an RV. When the RV breaks down, they are marooned in Iowa, and Gilbert takes a shine to the daughter, Becky. The housewife becomes jealous of Becky. She becomes increasingly careless about keeping the affair a secret and takes pleasure in forcing Gilbert to interact with her husband. Eventually, the husband dies, ostensibly of a heart attack, but Gilbert's friends think the housewife killed him. As Gilbert continues hanging out with Becky, he inevitably gets distracted from his many duties. His brother runs off to climb the water tower more times. Eventually, the police try to teach Arnie a lesson by arresting him, forcing Gilbert's mom to get up and leave the house to demand Arnie's release. At one point, Gilbert leaves his brother in the bath, assuming that Arnie will be able to finish washing up on his own. That never happens, and Arnie gets very cold sitting in the bathtub for hours on end. After that, Arnie becomes afraid to take a bath, and Gilbert ends up chasing him around the house. The frustration gets the better of him, and he hits Arnie. Ashamed of himself, Gilbert tries to run away. He goes to Becky, she helps him recover himself, and he returns home. There he apologizes to Arnie and introduces Becky to his mother. Shortly after that, Gilbert's mother dies. The police plan to remove her body from the house with a crane. To save her that indignity, Gilbert burns the house down. The foundation was compromised anyway, and at least he removed all the furniture first. Without the mother and without the house, some of the things tying Gilbert to Iowa have disappeared. His sisters take full advantage. One goes to Des Moines to run a bakery, while the other plans to switch schools and move to a big city. But Gilbert... As far as we can tell, he's still in that town taking care of his brother. Eventually, Becky's RV is fixed and she goes on her way. Gilbert doesn't go with her. A year later, she visits the town again and Gilbert greets her. 
But then the film ends, and we don't really know what comes next. I really like this film as a meditation on duty. Gilbert has an enormous number of duties. As you watch the film, there are two wolves inside you. One says that Gilbert didn't choose this life, that he ought to be set free. All these people rely on him because his father committed suicide and his mother is too heavy to help. That's not his fault. The other wolf says that this is his family, that being a good person means observing both the duties we seek out and those that are thrust upon us. At one point, Becky asks Gilbert what he wants in life. Gilbert says he wants to be a good person. For some philosophers, being a good person requires access to a set of conditions that are unavailable to Gilbert. Aristotle argues that a virtuous person needs free time and a certain kind of education to enable them to use the time well. But Gilbert has very little free time. When he isn't working, he is taking care of himself so that he'll be ready to work again soon. Gilbert's obligations are so extensive that he doesn't have time to have a girlfriend. He doesn't have time to gain the credentials necessary to move on from the grocery store. How is he meant to contemplate the good and apply it in the world through the practice of some virtuous craft? And yet, if Gilbert were determined to carve out that free time for himself, he would have to abandon members of his family to fend for themselves. Gilbert cannot leave town and go to university. Gilbert cannot even leave his brother in the bathtub and go on a date. To be a good person, he must abandon any hope of further developing himself. That seems paradoxical. It wouldn't have been to Aristotle, who argued that many people simply aren't cut out for acquiring the virtues. If Gilbert doesn't have the ability to choose his own ends, then he lives as a slave. But Aristotle thought that slavery was inevitable and necessary. The slaves create the free time other people use to pursue the good. Because Gilbert takes care of the family, his sisters are free to leave. They can live the lives Gilbert cannot live because Gilbert has sacrificed himself for them. Every person who has free time got that time from somebody. The price of philosophy for some is that others must live as Gilbert does. But Gilbert's life has a quiet dignity. Gilbert takes care of his family simply because it is the right thing to do, even though he must know that by doing this he ensures he will never get to do much else. When things aren't going well and he's tired and frustrated, he resents the situation and thinks about running away. But he doesn't. He sticks with it. There will be no external reward for this. He will never make good money as a grocer. He will supplement the pittance he earns with Arnie's disability check and he'll get by. But he'll always be poor and he'll never go away with Becky. He'll never see the world or take part in running it. Is Gilbert morally required to stay? I see a few different possible views. It might be that he is obligated to stay. It might be that it would be supererogatory for him to stay. It's good of him, but not something he's obligated to do. But there are also those who would say that it's wrong for him to stay, that by staying out of a sense of duty, he fails to properly develop himself or acts in bad faith. Is he obligated to stay? Is it supererogatory for him to stay? Or is it wrong of him to stay? And should the state help Gilbert? It could do more than just send a disability check for Arnie. It could put Arnie up somewhere and pay other people to take care of him. I doubt Arnie would like that, and I doubt the people the state would pay to take care of Arnie would live much better lives than the one Gilbert is living. They may even live worse lives, insofar as Gilbert has personal reasons to derive a sense of value from helping Arnie, and they don't. But perhaps they would live difficult lives anyway. Perhaps Gilbert can do more with the freedom than they can. How do we decide who gets to be free and who doesn't? We make cruel judgments about merit. Or, to avoid doing that, we leave it up to the market, to the law of the jungle, to chance. What do we owe people like Gilbert? They are the ones who make things work. They feed us. It doesn't seem right to say that they are obligated to perform the duties that have been thrust upon them. 
But if we cut everyone loose from duty to pursue freedom, we get a war of all against all, mediated through markets, patronage systems, and other structures that sanitize the struggle for free time. I love this film because it makes me so uncomfortable. My dad is dead, and my mother wants me to leave her and get an academic job. But she also needs my help a lot, and she'd like it if I were more helpful than I often am. Of course, if I were more helpful, then I'd never have time to do the things that will eventually allow me to leave. And when I leave, things will be even harder for her. But she still wants me to leave. There is no good solution to situations of this kind. Ultimately, someone sacrifices freedom for someone else. If you're the one benefiting, you want to do right by the one who sacrifices everything for you. But were you to ever do enough, you would defeat the point of the sacrifice. The sacrifice only works because it is never reciprocated. This is what makes the sacrifice so sacred and so sublime. Once you recognize that you are free because of the sacrifices of others, you have a life debt to them that you can never repay in full. That is why, ultimately, the true philosopher does everything they can to help the worker, short of annihilating the possibility of philosophy itself. It is by struggling on behalf of the worker that the philosopher seeks to put right what can never be put right, the fundamental fact that the philosopher's ability to do philosophy depends on slavery. So, next, let's hear from Helen. Okay, yes, uh, lots of interesting things that you said there. And, um, you know, just in terms of that thing, the, the last point you were making about, you know, this eternal debt that we owe to people, this sort of sacred debt to people who are making all the sacrifice. Part of the um, issue with capitalism, of course, is the sacrifice that has gone on in all different forms of um, uh, material arrangements, feudal systems, systems of slavery exists today, but we are so um, determined to neutralize the um, confrontation with that, that we paper it over with ideology and um, commodity fetishism. Um, yeah, and it's interesting films like this that really bring to the fore um, the question of sacrifice. Obviously, um, I think we can all identify in some way with Gilbert to greater and lesser ex extents. Obviously, this is quite a constrained condition he finds himself in. Um, his material conditions are not great. Um, but often, you know, you were, you were talking sort of biographically there, like there are um, impossible situations uh, predicated upon material conditions that one um, confronts based on the time and place one lives in. Um, and also the, the one's own desires and the desires of, of, of another. And those desires often in conflict and often those desires are in conflict with themselves. So we often have um, figures to whom we have a responsibility. And that responsibility is impossible precisely because um, it is to a desire that that is illogical because it is desire. And often um, these can be to do with uh, aspirations for young people uh, based on the sacrifices that a parent has made. But those aspirations don't belong to the child, but rather to the parent. And the aspirations are fantasies that no longer exist or if they ever existed, were divided in the first place. So often um, the entanglement of duty is not only just a mere material one, but also one that merits sort of uh, an, a psychoanalytic kind of um, examination. But one thing that the um, this film really made me think about was the parable of the prodigal son. I'll come on to it in a second in terms of um, 
a, a son who who leaves the who who has the opportunity to leave and then comes back, and there are different readings of this. So choosing to come back to duty, um, but obviously, you know, uh, something that comes to mind is this idea that we don't we don't choose where we're born and to whom we are born. Um, Gilbert is born to a mother who is not very good at handling stress and she obviously has a metabolic disorder which is, uh, makes her life very difficult and to her, a father who is no longer there who took his own life um, and in this way we also don't get to choose our desires we, our desires are predicated upon the situation into which we are born and the people to whom we are born so the speaking subjects who already exist our interaction with those speaking subjects as we ourselves become speaking subjects and enter into language and the conditions we live in. And we're endowed with desires that are beyond, that enter into us as we are developing language. So it's almost before we become ourselves. So, but um, psychoanalytically, we would argue that we do have a duty towards our desires, towards our unconscious, if we have a duty at all. And that duty is not... um, one that's a very easy duty because desire, there is no end to desire. If we if we get if we fulfil our desires and these fantasies that are uh, you know endowed upon us as children and developed through the concrete thinking of children are often, are often ridiculous, don't mix with reality, and are often very ideological. Um, so not only you know are they are they unrealistic because they are so based upon concrete and ideological thinking, but also if we were to get them, even if they weren't so ridiculous, we would not be fulfilled because we can never um, cover over the lack from whence those desires come. Um, but what we what we can do is recognise our desires. So somebody like Gilbert, you know, his situation is not is not an ideal one. But it's interesting that at the end of the film, you know, the end of the film. Is the same as the beginning of the film, but something has changed, right? You know that his his material conditions have changed in a certain way. You know, um, events have happened with his with his family, but he has actually had a kind of psychoanalytic encounter, like an emancipatory encounter with this woman who passes through the town, and is able to engage with his conditions in a different way, based upon understanding something about herself. And I, you know, I'm not saying that like it's clear what it is, um, and that this isn't to say that you know his material conditions and his duties aren't like too much to bear, but we can um, often be liberated from, uh, well, I don't know if liberated, liberated is the right word, but we can lower the toxicity of our, um, the ideological and death drive dimensions of our desire and fantasy, which can make us make better economic decisions in the present. Um, But we can, you know, pick the living flower, so to speak, and build more, um, acceptable lives based on the reality that we are in but this is not to say that we shouldn't do things politically in fact i think this is precisely what gets us to act politically um precisely when we lower you know the the stakes on um ideology on these uh, toxic elements of for example capitalism system that we're in now in order that we realize that there is no end to desire there is no uh, fantasy in that which is promised by capitalism so that precisely knowing this and facing reality as it is we can make society better for people like Gilbert and Arnie and that family that is that is struggling um you know and it is it's interesting you know often children are adults children are born often with you know for well who knows why somebody decides to have a child there's so many different reasons 
But often a child finds themselves in, the, in a position of an adult or parenting their own parents immediately. And obviously Gilbert, I think, in this film is 25. And I think things have possibly changed. His material conditions have changed to the extent where he has become more of a parental figure in his youth to his mother, for instance. You know, and, you know the, the parent, for instance, often is providing something for a child that they're not even aware of. And the mother, unable to move from her space on the, on the sofa, is fed is clothed, has the house fixed around her, completely unaware of what's going on. And it is very sad that children often are in this role of comforter for their own parents. And this can, this can, you know, as a child, so the child takes on a role of realising that, you know, on some level, their parents are missing something in some way, or the parents are really struggling emotionally and the child can become a carer and everything they do becomes involved in a relationship with their own parents. And they can do a lot to try to assuage the issues with their parents and misrecognize their own desires in feeling a duty to their own parents' desires or to their own parents' misrecognized desires. And so um, there can often come points of reckoning for an adult um, when they realize that they have sold out their own desires for a sense of duty for another's desires, which potentially weren't even the desires of the other in the first place, but are sort of misrecognized as or, you know, uh, issues that related to the fact of a misrecognition of their own desires. So this is where really the, the true responsibility and the true helpfulness is recognising one, one's own desires, not to go after one's desires selfishly, but to just acknowledge what they are. And to, you know, really this this can lower the stakes on all kinds of, like, reaction formations that relate, around, or relate to um, being alienated from one's own desires, although alienation really creates desire in the first place, so it's a little bit complicated. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say about the the figure of the prodigal son. So the prodigal son is, you know, a, a, a young man who's disillusioned with uh, his wealthy father's world and he goes off and he has his estate and sort of squanders all the money and he's a real, you know, um, rebelling against his father's uh, system. But in a way, you know, this is a this is a very um, ideologically satisfying position. Um, there's a, a writer, Kester Bruin, has written a lot about it. He critiques the parable of this, the prodigal son with the Christian insight as the son goes back. Um, but I think there's sort of a neoliberal kind of capitalistic, um, uh, you know, critique in the Christian um, parable, which I think if it, a conservative reading gets wrong, but then there's potentially more of a kind of like an atheistic uh, psychoanalytic reading. But this, you know, if you just go off, if Gilbert was to just say, fuck, fuck everybody, I'm going to go off and I, you know, I resent you and I'm going to whatever. Obviously, it's different to the prodigal son who's coming from a wealthy background. But, you know, that sustains what is, uh, you know, it's, it's a dialectical sustaining um, where you were kind of, uh, you, you know, a necessary enemy to, to the situation from which you've escaped and you're sort of only living according to the um, anger at this original condition. But there is something potentially emancipatory in a, in a returning, but re-engaging with a condition differently. Um, perhaps recognising the issues um, that have existed, recognising that there is no promise in... Um, a reactionary alternative, but potentially the revolution is this sort of good infinite of returning to the new, constantly returning in kind of a cyclical way, rather than a, an attempt at a bad infinite that in fact keeps one trapped in a cycle of violence and totalitarianism and enemy making. But actually that instead of going for the bad infinite or to, towards a totality, but remaining in the cyclical present, you can actually transfer, create something more transformative in the here and now. 
All right. So now it's Nina's turn. Uh, right. So just just to say that I'm recording this from uh, the Norwegian countryside in the middle of uh, a storm. <laughs> I'm currently here to, teaching on a writing workshop. Um, so if I drop out or if my sound is bad, I, I apologize in advance to any listeners and to my co-hosts. Um, yeah, there, there are some like seriously Norse god action going on outside. <laughs> um, so yeah, anyway, I really appreciated both of your readings of this film um, and this question of duty. Um, it's hard for me not to uh, also posit the kind of uh, almost like the teenage rebellion, uh, at least as a notion uh, against the idea of familial duty as a hypothetical response, which is I didn't ask to be born. I don't owe you anything, um, <laughs> which is another option uh, altogether um, in the sense that uh, you could say perhaps that existence itself is uh, is something of, of a curse or something unasked for, which would be like the wisdom of uh, Silenus. However, what, once we are here, um, the question of what we owe to others, um, what we owe to ourselves, uh, I think is uh, was very well put by both Benjamin and, and Helen, and I think is extremely uh difficult i i feel just personally if my parents asked me to come back and help look after them back to the countryside i would do it um and i i would do it um without uh resentment at the same time i know that the kind of people that my parents are they're very unlikely in any situation that is conceivable to put me in that position if they could possibly help it because they are also extremely committed to being not only highly independent, but also to giving me my own existential freedom as a condition of their own parenting. Um, so uh, my relationship to duty is clearly uh, conditioned by their relationship to freedom. Um, and, that, and this is uh, not exactly the situation that Gilbert finds himself in. I must admit, somewhat superficially, I was uh, intrigued by this film. I, I definitely saw it maybe not in 94 but definitely during the 90s and of course I'm obsessed with the 90s as someone who grew up as a you know I was 11 in 1990 and there is something extremely 90s about this film it, it conjures uh uh in a way a very uh a, a sort of low level despair not the kind of hard-edged despair that we see now in many ways I I think a lot of the contradictions have been sharpened in uh, in our contemporary culture in a way that, that even where there is sadness and tragedy and and poverty here there is still a, a very human heart this film is quite sentimental this film is quite slow in some ways it's quite obvious but it's not bad for all of those reasons that, that as in those reasons don't make it a bad film they actually make it quite a charming film um and i one of the superficial uh, ways in which I uh, I understood this film, I suppose, is not only in this reminiscence of the 90s. Oh, of course, I didn't grow up in America, but there's something about grunge and about the way, the kind of clothes that people were wearing and the relation to technology and so on, which was recalled, at least for me and probably for others who were there, at a slightly simpler time. Um, you know, even one in which the a certain form of melancholy was permitted that is 
more beautiful. And we've talked about melancholy and beauty um, in earlier episodes. But uh, but also I have to say I was very struck by the beauty of Johnny Depp uh, in a way that I wouldn't have been at the time, I think. And and I was thinking to myself, of course, there's this trial going on, or not a trial, this uh, this case uh, to do with uh, defamation and... Amber Heard and all of this that's, you know, with Johnny Depp in real life and real time. Uh, I haven't seen uh, most of it. I've been busy this week. I haven't seen any anything lately. I Apparently Kate Moss turned up. How exciting. Um, but I, I haven't seen this. But, but what has struck me in the bits of the, the case that I've seen is the... Um, the the kind of horror of fame actually that you know that this is actually a portrayal of a life in which people have everything that they could possibly want they have millions of pounds they have people doing things for them you know and they cannot overcome their own limitations their own flaws you know so so Depp's own extremely difficult childhood he's he's somehow never managed to overcome it he takes drugs and drinks in order to escape these things and of course he can do that whenever he likes because he has people who can get him these things. He's got more money than he could ever do anything with. It clearly is surrounded by people who take advantage of him and so on and so forth. And the thing that, in a way, um, characterizes both Depp and Heard and people in this kind of Hollywood uh, world, you know, is is something, again, that they didn't choose, which is their beauty. You know, in a pure and simple way, we are fascinated by by human beings who are extremely beautiful. And, and there is... I think no getting away from the fact that Johnny Depp is an extremely beautiful man. He's a beautiful man in this film. He's a young man. And I think we are fascinated aesthetically and on some very deep level by examples of humanity who seem to um, hint at something uh, else, you know, something mysterious, something that there is something playful or unknowable in these beautiful, the faces of these beautiful people that we find endlessly, endlessly fascinating. And this is, of course, why we make these people movie stars, why we make them models, why we, you know, because in a way we want to understand their secret. But there is no secret. <laughs> the secret is they randomly happen to look slightly more appealing than other people. And this is, in fact, uh, something like a terrible curse, it, you know, for those people who are beautiful. And I, I, I've, I've spoken before about being friends with somebody who's, who is, who's very beautiful, very young, very beautiful and very vulnerable and all I could see, all I wanted to do was to protect her because her beauty uh, brought her nothing but trouble, you know. And I, I feel maybe this is partly an age thing. I feel, um, I feel so protective towards people who are beautiful when they're young because I think they're so, um, they're so vulnerable to other people's desires. Because what happens then is people project all of their desires onto these beautiful people, you know, and they imagine that they're the answer to their prayers and. Or whatever, you know, that there's an infinite play on the face of the beautiful other. And so all I could feel in some ways was uh, this great sadness for Johnny Depp as this person who happened to be beautiful. And what a a terrible thing it is in a representational culture to be a beautiful human being. Um, and I, I think this says something also about, about cinema, you know, and what it is that we are interested in cinema. I think in the 90s, a lot of indie filmmakers... And it's also in this film too. They also wanted to experiment or play with the depiction of people who are not beautiful. Johnny Depp's mother is, is as a was a woman who who the character, the woman who plays, was you know not an actress. Was a woman who was on a TV show who was uh, at that time seen you know as like almost like a freak in a way. You know to be this morbidly obese. I mean, it's also I think worth noting that. Um, 
obesity has increased it's very obvious you know we think in in this film she's depicted as uh extremely unusual for being this overweight but i don't think now a film would be able to to make the same point in a way because obesity is so much higher if you see what i mean i mean of course this woman seems seems very overweight but it's it's not so unusual now that it she would be treated as in the way that she is in the film as as somehow so different and so removed from the norm um so i think you know in the 90s maybe you have more of this attempt although freaks is a much older film a very interesting film by top browning um that depicts people with different disabilities and 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 uh, who are differently abled and you know cinema of course is fascinated with the body and the face and beauty and these these kind of uh these things and i think the juxtaposition of Johnny Depp's beauty with the supposed um, almost obscenity of the obesity of his the woman who plays his mother in the film is is a kind of uh, a gesture to what cinema is is about actually you know this dialectic between beauty and and what almost cannot be seen I suppose or what is difficult to see. And yeah, I, I I just thought a lot all the way through about this this curse of beauty and beauty itself as a kind of a difficult thing to live with. There's a really good episode of Why Theory podcast, Todd McGowan and Brian Engley about disability, and they talk about it in similar ways to what you're talking about there, Nina. I think it was came out maybe two or three years ago now, but it's a very good episode. I mean, I don't know how you both feel about Johnny Depp or, you know, his his, his beauty that I keep mentioning. No, it's, it's very true. I mean, this, this is the thing. It's like there's no there there, right? Mm. But obviously we want to imagine that there is. It's like any transcendent object. How, how could something so beautiful not be, you not have some deeper transcendent meaning, you know? Mm. How, how, could it, how could it not? You know, it's, it's almost, it's so hard to imagine that it's just... Uh, there's no, there's no meaning there. You know? <laughs> Although, you know, of course, it's funny because aesthetics are so important in terms of when you're communicating an idea or, you know, um, making a work, you know, they, they, they become important in terms of, or they can be used to convey something. And obviously, when we talked about the face, and the, I think when we did the Dune episode, you talked about the idea of the face. It's so, it's so important to things like filmmaking. But of course, there's, the reality is, I mean, this is like the, transparential relationship with the analyst you have to go in believing that there is a there there and you're gradually in order to finally come to understand that there isn't you have to believe that there is in the first place um but it's interesting with the amber heard johnny depp trial in terms of um whether there is a question of um one you know with johnny depp does he you know he is beautiful but he can't tolerate his own beauty in some way um and, you know, perhaps there are others who, who buy into their own beauty, and that is also another curse. You know, that's also possibly even worse. I think on, on this issue of celebrity performers, beauty is, of course, necessary to become a celebrity performer. But there's also this push factor of, of the unaffirming childhood that often causes people to seek affirmation through performance if... Your family, if the people who are close are, are meant to be close to you, don't treat you in a loving way. 
to look for that love from the public is, is often something that pushes people into performance. And when we think about celebrity performers, we're thinking about people who have the resources to carve out chunks of time for themselves to cultivate the virtues and live the good life in every kind of antique sense. But for the most part, that doesn't happen. At least it doesn't happen among the people who stay famous. If you're to stay famous, you stay famous because you keep going after the recognition and you keep trying to fill the hole that comes out of the, the childhood. And the beauty allows you to continue to do this and it enables you to continue to do this without having to reconfigure life and come to a moment of reckoning where you have to decide, you know, well, what are you really going to live for? And I think people talk about this in relation to female actresses and how female actresses in desperation to be able to maintain their ability to do this. They have all sorts of work done. Uh, but also there's the curse of the male actor who is able to, as he ages, take on different types of beauty. And so never mm. has to at any point in life confront anything outside of this because it never happens. By the time Johnny Depp becomes middle-aged, she is, is now beautiful in a different way. Johnny Depp can take all sorts of drugs that in theory erode his body, but they just make him beautiful in other kinds of damaged ways. And so there's no way out for him. He will always look like someone who should be on the screen. And he's so uh, charismatic in the way that he presents that if there's a televised trial, of course, people will gravitate to him because not only mm -hmm. does he look really good, but he sounds the way he talks, the way he constructs sentences of his own accord. It all contributes to this. And so he will, of course, end up in movies again after all of this is done. And he will, of course, continue to be famous and he will always be on this cycle. And he'll never get off. And other people who aren't as beautiful or who cease to be beautiful, they, it forces them to have another phase of life and forces them to grow. And Johnny Depp will never have to grow. Mm. It's very well put. It's very interesting, actually, to see, um, to be reminded that actually uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is in this film as well as the, um, the intellectually uh, challenged brother. And uh, he's actually extremely good. You have to say, like his his acting is absolutely fantastic in this film. It's like uh, it's a very interesting reminder. I mean, he's someone who's now, you know, incredibly famous and has been in many many films and so on. And you know, but but he he um, as opposed to I think the you know the the curse of beauty, the the, the face of of depth. There's something kind of very spirited and skillful about his performance in this film. Like this is someone who is. Uh, already a master of his craft, you know, and and what we admire, I think, in 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 this in his performance is is that kind of mastery, is a skillfulness, and he doesn't seem like he's going to be as trapped as Depp somehow, even in this very early film where he's quite young, somehow, you know, that his ability and his talent resides in something more intelligent. Well, he was almost not in the mere not cast for this. The Originally, mm. the uh, they were not going to cast him because they considered him too good looking for the role. Mm. And then it was his ability to play the character which eventually won them over. But oftentimes, more complicated characters, if you look too good, then you don't quite seem to fit. But it's very, again, it's a kind of a skill if you're a good looking person to, to not be good looking, right? And he, he does that very well here, you know? 
you, you're not distracted by his his looks, if you like, in this film. There's also, uh, interestingly, the characters, the actors who are cast as not good-looking characters. One of the most stunning people I've ever seen in real life, just I passed by her once, was Hilary Swank. Mm. And she always plays, you know, um, I haven't seen her in a film recently, but I just think of, you know, things like Million Dollar Baby. But she was so visually compelling. Like, I honestly, she she had this sort of aura of beauty and it was like a beauty that was more beautiful than other very beautiful actors that I've met, you know, and she, she plays quote unquote unattractive characters. You know? So, so maybe there's a sort of um, jolly led, you know, kind of thing as well that operates. Yeah. Actors are not models and models don't quite work as actors. No, not usually. Yeah. No, it's interesting um, when, because I think, you know, there is, in this sort of age of it is a privilege to work, it is like um, a cultural, um, you have cultural capital just to be doing something professional. You have um, many people, for example, every blockbuster actress has their own production company now, you know, it's a girl boss thing. And, you know, actresses, models are not only just models, they also are an influencer or they, you know, write music, you know, and this is, and I think it is to do with the fact that it's a pay to play um, arena in terms of um, being employed. Like the conditions are so bad in terms of professional jobs these days that um, it is a cultural signifier to just participate. Um, so, but there are lots of actresses, uh, models who have done some acting and, often, um, n- you know, not, not amazingly well, let's just say, but sometimes, sometimes well. But also I think models in real life, you know, it, we, it's like the photogenic person is not necessarily the fanciable person, right? Like, no, exactly. Yeah. You know, I have, a, I have a friend who was the face of Top Man when he was a teenager and he looks really weird in real life. I mean, he's, he's, Good looking and beautiful, but looks very strange. But when you see him in photographs, he looks like a model. You know, it's mm-hmm. just... Uh, Some people ph- photograph so well. Yeah. And it's yeah. very interesting. But these are... I think I'm interested in this question of like what is chosen and what is not. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. both in terms of yeah, this exactly. question of duty and in terms of what you are born with or what you're given and... You know, I mean, it, it's it's the Leonardo DiCaprio character in a way. It's like, you know, the film begins by saying like, the, you know, he was already supposed to be dead. You know, this this boy wasn't supposed to live beyond a certain age. And, you know, they don't know how long he's going to live for. And the whole film is sort of based around his 18th birthday is coming up. And, you know, in many ways, he's a very difficult character. In many ways, he's very charming. You know, he's clearly a handful. He's a duty. Uh, he didn't choose to be, you know, when 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 the Johnny Depp character is asked what he wants by the uh, Juliet uh, Lewis, no Lewis, Lewis, yeah, uh, yeah, character who's also good in this film, I think, very nineties kind of woman mm-hmm. uh, depiction, yeah, uh, extremely so actually. But um, what he wants, you know, and he said, "I would like a new brain for for my brother." You know, it's like, uh, but in a way, the the life that uh, the brother has is 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 very beautiful and and present and 
immediate and free. You know, the the boy climbs the tower almost whenever he wants, for example, or the tree. Yeah, there's this. In some ways, you know, Johnny Depp himself grew up in a in a difficult uh, family in Kentucky, a rural family with a, a mother that was difficult for him in a different way. Um, but there does seem to be a kind of interdependence of the unfreedom of living in that kind of situation, and then the unfreedom of of being psychologically dominated by the legacy of that, even should you get out. So oftentimes, especially in the United States, we have this kind of narrative of, of the American dream and meritocracy, and you, you get out. And we celebrate the people who get out of these bad environments, but then they carry the psychological baggage of the bad environments into their elite roles. And if it doesn't cause them to fail in the elite role, yet nonetheless, destroys the possibility of the elite world genuinely emancipating them in any meaningful sense. Mm. Uh, and also, it's not just the really, really elite roles where this happens, but also with class migrants who, for instance, go from being working class to professional, grow up in a working class family and become professional, who carry a set of burdens that come out of growing up working class that affect the way that they parent, you know, where they're uh, determined to have their kids um, endure all of the same forms of suffering they endured because they've rationalized that suffering as having contributed to their ability to get out. Uh, you often see that in professional class mm -hmm. homes. Even when you have mobility, even when people seem to have transcended or to have gotten out of these material conditions that we associate with abuse and instability, the, if you ever contact a material condition of poverty or insecurity or precarity, if that's ever in your life for any sustained period, it marks the rest of your life. And it marks you even when you seem to get out. And we have a lot of, there's a lot of stupid political science in the States that holds that, well, if your family income is high, then the economy can't be affecting the way that you think or the way that you live. Uh, we, we saw this with the uh, People were talking about, well, you know, why do people vote for Trump? Well, it can't be the economy because uh, lots of rich people voted for Trump and lots of poor people voted for Clinton. This kind of, uh, A, uh, ossifying class by treating it as if it's just a matter of income, uh, which is not a way to think about class. Class is not just reducible to the amount of money that you earn. It's a whole experience. Uh, but but beyond that, also to think that it's it's so one-dimensional that we're not affected by any form of economic oppression unless we are experiencing poverty actively, experiencing precarity actively. But it's having at any point touched it, being at any point afraid of it, making decisions on the basis that it could happen to you or that it could happen to your children in the future, uh, even with no immediate threat of it. Just knowing that it happens in your society and it could happen to someone around you, if not even if even not you yourself, affects all of the decisions that people make and affects our whole attitude to life, our whole sense of whether things are fair or unfair. And the guy who watches you know, Fox News, the, the you know, person with six-figure income living in a reasonably nice house in the suburbs, is constantly thinking about how other people who haven't earned it want what they have or want their stuff. 
or want it transferred to them. And they live in this constant fear that somehow it will be taken away, that they'll lose it. And just because somebody's got a ton of money, it doesn't mean that they're not affected by these fears and these anxieties that are driven by the economic system. And uh, the, that duality of thinking about Johnny Depp the person and thinking about this character and about Johnny Depp's childhood, which in some ways is similar, our system works because it produces both. Insofar as it works the way it does, it works through the production of both and through the tension between both. For sure. I mean, it just to, to go back to this obsessive question about beauty. I mean, it's interesting if you think in you know in Plato, for example, like the the, the trick in a way with beauty is not to confuse the beauty with the boy, right? that the beauty is not pointing towards the, the person and the mystery and the kernel and all of these things that, in fact, cinema depends upon um, and celebrity culture, but in fact points towards something else, right? So that the reminder is supposed to be not of the, I don't know, not the desire, the sexual desire or mystery or poetry of the person, but rather of beauty itself, right? Beauty, beauty as such, right? The, and that if you like, uh, there is a kind of um, political and economic question about beauty too, which is, you know, I'm obsessed, as I said, like, how do we redistribute beauty, right? And I think it's it's to go with like the flower example that Helen uses all the time or bread and roses or, you know, it's not enough just to to um, have the bare minimum, right? To, to be, to, to be uh, sustained, uh, that life is, is also beauty right? Whatever that means, whether it's looking at birds or flowers or, I don't know, reflecting on the weather in a poetic sense, having the free time, as Benjamin put it, to even be in a position to um, contemplate, however briefly, to, to be a philosopher. And it's like, you know, your your opposition at the end was was a very brutal one, right? Or, or the situation is to say, in order for there to be philosophers, there must be slaves, right? Which is in a way the Aristotelian uh, position. And I wonder if there is a kind of kinder, gentler way of putting this, which is to say something like, is there a way in which everyone can philosophize enough within their own lives in the sense that can we redistribute both the, the, the work that must be done and the, t and the free time? in a more equitable way, such that people want, I mean, this is the, the like, I don't know, the, the philosophical communist solution in a way. It's it's like Marx in the German ideology, but it's like, how could we get to a situation in which people could, that everyone could be a philosopher, if you see what I mean, without it, their needing to be slaves? It's interesting right now, because we have this weird situation where through indebtedness and education, I wouldn't say that people have got the opportunity to be philosophers because a lot of the education is terrible, but have been um, given a certain experience of having some version of time to think or to develop intellectually to a certain degree, although to what extent is it just ideological indoctrination at this point, but enslaving themselves you know, in the future through debt and i mean you know, like certainly like compared to what we have now like certainty certainly like we can redistribute a bit more than we have now i mean like i was uh you know if you look at any any billionaire's wealth in the last 
three years. It's, the extent that it's gone up is just absolutely staggering. Um, and, you know, the situation is 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 incredibly bad. It's interesting because um, I was looking at something about like technological development between 1900 and 1950 or 19 some well obviously not 1900 obviously material conditions for most people then was shit but you know a period of time when there was actually more i mean obviously benjamin might chuckle a uh, wet a, a bucket of water on like the reasons why it was more people more people had a nice period of time let's say in the 50s and 60s or whatever but you know the the level of um, technological uh, development during the time where there was maybe greater equity was massive and then now obviously that we have so much inequality in part of the quote unquote reason is because of technological advancement but really like how much technological advancement have we really had you know anyway but the point being is i think it's interesting that that there has been this sort of space of time like four years which has been a time where people have got some education it's not you know, this sort of like Taz moment where people can like explore philosophically. <laughs> so this this happens in places like France, like the best education I ever got was one year in France at a school where that situation was created for a handful of people, which was very lucky. But uh, for me, but, um, um, but it's interesting that like, so those four years are basically because there aren't enough jobs for people. So they have to be busy and, you know, and it's a way to sort of like, indebt people and indoctrinate people but it is at the they have enslaved themselves so a couple of thoughts one of course the period of mid-century leveling uh, was caused largely by the world wars yes the world wars broke up broke up trade and uh, forced western countries to manufacture a lot of their own stuff and to not seek out cheap labor overseas and therefore uh, to have to make arrangements with their workers such that their workers would make stuff so that they could win wars. The wars inflated away a lot of the wealth of the uh, wealthy and created a political excuse to tax a lot of what remained. So the wars were completely essential. The threat of, so, of communist revolution also completely essential and therefore the Russian revolution completely essential to what happened in the West. Uh, so the Soviet project is central to what happened in the West. Uh, all of that, people gloss over. They want to pretend that it was something that came out of liberal democracy organically of its own accord without anything bad having to have happened. And and this is the the wonderful and terrible crisis of, of now as people look at the 20th century as this example, both of what is possible, uh, but also what is terrible. And of course, what is terrible about the 20th century and what was wonderful about the 20th century went together and were intimately connected. And people want the nice parts without the bad parts. And they won't get that. Uh, but this this other uh, question that Nina raises, I think that there's uh, this kind of split between technophile and technophobic socialism. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. the split between technophile and technophobic socialism also cuts along a split between socialists who want everyone to be aristocrats who tend to be technophiles and socialists who want everyone to be workers who tend to be technophobic and from the point of view of the technophile socialists that's a socialism where everyone's a slave and so i one of the i'm always interested in this because I, I view it as a little bit of a tension of nina's position which is that nina is very technophobic <laughs> but nina wants everyone to do philosophy and i've i've Never seen a political economy that does that. 
Yeah, I, well, I, you, you raise a very good point. And, and, you know, I'm working for Compact now and we're publishing people like Emmett Penny, um, who's just written a very interesting piece about energy lysenkoism. And it's very, very critical of the degrowth position. And I, I want us to run something that's extremely pro-degrowth, but extremely serious. And not um, and that avoids some of these kind of uh, yeah clearly economic segregations which would be punishing or like you know treating a lot of people as um, either outside of the system or as slaves within it right so I agree I this is something I I think about a lot and it, it's uh, it, you're right to to point to it as attention and and it, in a way of course uh, perhaps some of what I'm saying is 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 explicitly utopian it's very very difficult to imagine a world uh, where uh, the these divisions and these um, things don't exist, um, especially because we are so technically minded, because we think that solutions are um, technological and, and in a way they have to be because we created a world that's so complicated by our use of t tools that we now have to use tools in order to deal with the complications that the tools have created. So it's almost impossible to imagine a world that is without certain, you know, developments and certain tools, right? So, and of course, what I'm, I, I'm, I seem to be proposing is perhaps something like a form of primitivism in which we radically scale down everything. You know, perhaps we we live off very little. We don't need very much. I mean, it's kind of a bit like Simone Weil, you know, without the uh, extremity of uh, perhaps the, the, you know, the starvation that it's not so ascetic, um, you know, but how do we get back or get to forward to a position in which um, we radically scale down uh, everything, uh, production, um, expectation, um, without harming, uh, people with, you know, the, it's, it's almost, I think it is impossible to do, but I think we have to speculate about it. If you sort of, yeah. mean, because what we're going to get instead is top down, um, oppress, extremely oppressive energy policies that are going to punish working class people above all else. Yeah. One of the things I'm seeing that really interests me, I think that some leftists who are interested in communes are kind of uh, working their way back to the concept of the monastery through left-wing discourse. Once you get to the commune that actually can self-sustain, what you effectively have is a monastery. Yeah. And so I think there's an interesting convergence there. Um, and I think we may see more uh, of that yeah. in the future. I don't. I don't disagree. I, I. I. think that is the that is one of the models, the the monastery or the nunnery, um, or you know maybe the mixed monastery, <laughs> or the mixed nunnery. Um, uh, yeah, That's the beauty I, of, I think of kind of finding. You know, you challenge the habits. You see what's you know what's wrong, but you you the habits. You don't just re-embrace the habits. You critique and improve. You know, what <laughs> the left is doing is uh, in in thinking about communes is that it started with religious organizations, critiqued them, but is now coming to see some of the reasons why I think monasteries are organized the way that they're organized, not just going back to that model, but then trying to improve on it in some way and make it something that can be sustained in a way that's compatible with uh, you know, many of the desires that people have that traditional monasteries suppressed and which uh, limited yeah. their appeal and limited their ability to, uh, to include. Yeah, I mean, just um, brief. Oh, sorry, Helen, go on. 
No, you, you go for it. You, you I'm just going to say very briefly, I mean, like, as I say, I'm currently staying in the Norwegian countryside and, and where I'm staying, in fact, there's a lot of push towards self-sufficiency. So a lot of people around here, like the house I'm staying in, the owner is, uh, you know, it's all about solar panels. You can't use very much water here anyway. There's very little access to gas. I mean, this is a very rich country, right? But they have extremely limited, deliberately almost, uh, environmental policies. You know, the water comes from the lake. The fire brigade bring you the water. It's very sweet, actually. You know, and you pay a fee every time your well runs dry and they bring you more water from the lake. They literally take it out. They suck it out and put it in your well. And, uh, you know, people are growing their own vegetables. You know, there is a really serious attempt here, it seems to me, to think very differently about how to live in a more self-sustaining way. And it's not coming down in this horrible edict way from the state, right? Yes, of course, uh-huh. energy is extremely expensive, but people are also seemingly very self-motivated to grow their own food, you know, uh, make their own energy where possible and, and so on and so forth. And of course you can do that in a, a country of 5 million people in which there's a lot of money from oil <laughs> well, exactly. and people are very well educated. From, from oil, from oil precisely. <laughs> I know. And this is like <laughs> the paradox, right? Or one of them, yeah. many. And it goes to show, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like the position of privilege that allows for those things to be explored. Exactly. And essentially, yeah, the, the, the reflective time to allow that to happen. But of course, it can't happen by edict. Psychoanalytically, it, it doesn't work. And obviously, so much of climate change is tied to death drive and to capitalism and climate change as the fantasy of capitalism, not only that it is a material reality, because I think this is the thing, you know, where you get these climate skeptics, often what they're not critiquing is the material reality of climate change. But the ideological the the role it plays as an ideological supplement to capitalism, which is very very obvious at the same time. But um, what you were talking about, Benjamin, about the the sort of millionaire who watches Fox News, and you mentioned Simone Veil, it really made me the image made me think of like um, Simone Veil talks about the miser, and the miser does relate to capitalism a lot, like the way the miser relates to lack and the threat of poverty. And it's not it's basically you know the, the miser can't enjoy what they have, they can't. They're held hostage from the good for fear of losing something that they will never enjoy because they just hold it. You know, they're, 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 they're held hostage by something that they hold hostage. And so much of that, and it's funny because there is like a, often Lacan gets critiqued by people who I think sort of misunderstand what is being said in Lacan with this question of lack that like, oh, it's really bad to talk about precarity and to think that you're, you know, you, you're, um, in need of something when actually you have a lot and we should talk more about, you know, visions of excess and stuff like that. But of course it's dialectic and desire comes from lack and excess comes from lack. And it's really, you know, a misunderstanding of one's lack that can generate toxic things like miserdomness. Um, but the question I was going to ask you actually, Benjamin, was like, I watched a documentary about some religious sect that, that I think they have a community in England and some in America that was really compelling. It was a sort of Christian socialist sect and they le- lived in sort of a commune and it was very egalitarian. And they had these various principles. And I think similar to like Quakers, but maybe a bit more extreme. And it was like, well, this seems like really great. But of course, potentially you could apply the same criticism as your critique to of co- cooperatives. Yeah. That these sort of puddles. Well, I'll, I'll try yeah. to keep it short because we're coming up to the end. But one of the paradoxes that I think is interesting uh, and that I think relates to this is the paradox of the petrol state. Petrol states are the most politically and culturally experimental states. 
They do all kinds of strange and weird stuff. Norway and Libya have a lot in common because they've done strange and weird stuff because they have oil wealth and therefore uh, there's money regardless of whether the economy is efficiently structured or not and therefore people can try all kinds of stuff. But those societies are at the same time completely dependent on, on the oil economy, the global oil economy, and they're continuing to be high oil prices. So they are able to be politically experimental because they are economically completely wired in to the global system. And if we were to actually do degrowth, that, then they would lose a lot of their capacity to entertain this kind of experimentation. And that's the fundamental sustainability problem of these experiments. The only places that they have been able to, to be tried are places that are completely wired in. And by the same token, a lot of, of cooperatives are dependent on there being money coming in to sustain them from people who are heavily embedded in capitalist social roles. A lot of cooperatives actively look for class trader types with six-figure or seven-figure incomes who will bankroll the commune and who don't mind so much if some people come and don't necessarily contribute their fair share. Uh, and that's, you know, monasteries historically have been dependent on churches and churches have been dependent on states and all attempts to act outside states and outside of, of economics ultimately seem to rely ultimately on that framework. And when you actually get, say, the collapse of the Roman Empire, uh, you, know, you also get monasteries being raided by Vikings and and, and torn to bits. <laughs> so there's this interdependence <laughs> yep. aspect that I think a lot of people are not ready to come to terms with that ultimately, you know, if you really get what you're looking for here and the state really backs off and lets you do these things, it will also let people come and burn your stuff and kill you. And, and it all goes together, unfortunately. I, I'm glad we went from Johnny Depp's cheekbones to the, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. Again, or the rise of the Roman Empire. I can't help talking about <laughs> antiquity. You know, I, I'm still holding out hope for Captain Jay Spiro. I'm imagining in Greek, it's like... I was waiting you know, for you to drop that not in. again. I, I'm still holding out hope. This is the tale of Captain Jay Spiro. <laughs> See, you know, it's sing-songy in the Greek. It would be fun. It would be fun. People would like it. Somebody could make a lot of money. Okay, I, we have to stop. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B-side. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.